Well, like I mentioned earlier, today is Father's Day, where dads everywhere get to eat like kings, do nothing, sit around the house all day, and the wives are pretty much thinking to themselves, not that different from any other day. (laughs) Father's Day, it's a 20th century invention. Did you know what it was created in response to? Mother's Day. Mother's Day came first. Dads, as an afterthought, had their Father's Day tacked on. And in the week leading up to Father's Day, you see all these news stories about what dads want most for their big day. And, of course, we live in America, so everything's commercialized. It's all about stuff. And one website lists some of the top things dads want this year. There's grilling tools, of course, because all men enjoy that primal experience of cooking meat over an open flame. And to match grilling tools, there's meat, mail-order meat, like those Omaha steaks, gadgets, are on every list, iPhones, iPads. Sports tickets seem to always work. And if you're creative, you can get your dad an opportunity to race or drive a stock car. Yet for all the polls out there on what dads want, still other polls show that wives are still mostly clueless and don't really know what to get their husbands for Father's Day. In typical fashion, the wife will ask her husband what he wants, and then in typical fashion, the husband will respond, "Uh, nothing, don't worry about it. Of course, wives can't get nothing, so they sometimes end up getting him something he's not too excited about. What do you think tops the list of least favorite Father's Day gifts? And according to one poll, the number one answer is ties. <laughs> you all got it right. 25% said ties are the worst thing you can get them. So if some of you ladies got a tie, by the way, it's not too late to return it. 21 said cologne, 21% said cologne, 16% said underwear, 15% socks, 13% said power tools. I think these are all things that guys have to buy anyway, so who wants them as a gift? Although you might be surprised to find power power tools on the list, but I think it's maybe it's because guys think their wife might get the wrong thing, or maybe it's they think, well, if she gets me a power tool, I'll have to use the power tool to do work around the house. Maybe that's it as well. Yeah, in all these polls, there is a sad trend revealed about the fathers of America. For all the things they want to do or receive on Father's Day, I can tell you one thing that most fathers don't want to do. Go to church. Of all the Sundays of the year, church attendance in America, it's highest for Easter, which is number one. Christmas is number two. Mother's Day is number three. And at the very bottom of the list of all those special Sundays of the year comes Father's Day. How can this be, you might ask? Well, fatherhood has fallen on hard times, both in the world and in the church. Across America, fathers today are uninvolved in the physical and spiritual lives of their children. Speaking in a physical sense, 33% of children live without their biological fathers today. That is one in three. In 1960, this number was just 8%. It's more tragic for families, uh, African-American families, where 63% of children live without their father. Fathers are physically abandoning their families and, of course, spiritually abandoning them as well. These numbers of fatherlessness are naturally in proportion to the divorce rate, which quadrupled from 1970 to 1995. Also, the number of births out of wedlock has skyrocketed in 2003. One in three newborns were born out of wedlock, the highest number ever at 1.42 million. 
This is in comparison to just 224,000 back in 1960. And so we're wondering, well, are there has to be consequences to this fatherless epidemic in America, and, and there are. The data is in, and it all consistently shows that of all the major social ills in our country can pretty much be tied back to the absence of the father. Children from fatherless homes are five times more likely to live below the poverty line. They're far more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. They're twice as likely to drop out of school. These children have three times as many behavioral problems and twice as many emotional problems. Three out of 14 suicides occur in a single-parent home. And finally, for fatherless boys, the crime rate goes through the roof. And for fatherless women, the teen pregnancy rate goes through the roof. Fathers are leading the charge out of the home, and so it's no wonder they're leading the charge out of the church. It's no wonder that more and more fathers today don't, they don't want to come to church on Father's Day. They don't really want to go to church at all. It's not important to them. And these numbers, when you hear them, they can sound a little overwhelming. They can feel overpowering like the tide where you, you can't help but get swept away. What can be done? Can this fatherhood failure epidemic in America change? I don't know. Will you be able to change the tide? It may be too late. However, although you you can't change the tide on your own, you can stand against it. The fathers around the nation are throwing in the towel concerning their roles and responsibilities. You don't have to. Fathers, you can take a stand to do what is right. And mothers, you can support that stand. Though everyone around you may abandon the Lord and his instruction, like Joshua, you can say, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And though everyone around you may be fleeing God and bowing the knee to Baal, so to speak, like Elijah, you can say, choose today to serve the Lord. And though everyone around you may not follow Christ because he sets too high a standard, like Peter, you can say, Lord, to whom shall we go? To the men in the room, fathers, future fathers, just, this really is one of the most important roles that God calls you to. And it's no accident that God reveals himself to us as our heavenly father. You should make obvious the importance of, of fatherhood. And just think, as father, you're the head, you're the leader. Read through First, Second Kings, and you'll quickly know that it takes just one bad leader to bring the nation into catastrophic curse. But it just takes one good leader to bring the nation into monumental blessing. So what do you want for your family? The blessing the curse. And then men, what type of father will you be? What type of leader will you be? To the fathers, the physical well-being of your children rests on your shoulder. They depend on you to protect them, to provide for them. And the spiritual well-being of your children rests on your shoulders. They depend on you to lead them into truth and righteousness. Moms, you play a huge role, a monumental role, of course, but As we saw in these statistics, if dad is not doing what he's called to do, the family may be doomed from the start. And in all this, for us as believers in Christ, we need a word. We need strong motivation to the parenting task. We need right direction to the parenting task. We need clear instruction to the parenting task. And if you're to stand firm against the tide of our society, what are you to stand firm on? And the answer has to be your devotion to Christ 
and to his word. This morning, this Father's Day, we need to search God's word for a word on parenting, an encouraging and instructive word, so that we are not like the nation around us, which is sadly crumbling. The fatherless epidemic, it's spreading, it's, it's infecting the church. It has to be stopped. And of all people, we can't follow suit. And we can make a difference in the church as we seek to do what's right in following the Lord. And thankfully, God has given us much careful instruction on raising children. This morning, though, I want to turn your attention to just one single verse that so precisely captures, captures God's will. It's worth our full attention. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me now. To Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. To the men in the room, if you love God, if you love your children, it's time to step it up. None of us are perfect men, perfect husbands, perfect fathers, but you need to be willing to pursue the standards that God, by his grace, calls you to. And if you are, you need to receive this word from the Lord today, Ephesians chapter 6. We're just looking at one verse, verse 4. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Two commandments are given in this verse. One, don't provoke your child, child to anger. And two, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, who are these Commands given to. Verse 4 says fathers, but not so fast. The Greek word for fathers, pater, can be used in reference to fathers, ancestors, founders, leaders. But when it's found in the plural, like it is here, it can refer to both parents, mother and father, like it does in Hebrews 11.23. So here in Ephesians 6.4, mothers are not precluded from these commands. Moms, this is for you as well. This verse it's for you. Children must obey their mothers, per verse 1. They must honor their mothers, per verse 2. So naturally it follows that mothers must also work to not provoke their children to anger, but train them and lead them in discipline and instruction. So the point is, moms, you're not off the hook either this morning. This, this verse is for both parents. That being said, I do believe there is a, a special, more direct application for fathers. Paul could have used a different word here in verse 4, like noose, which is a word for parents. In fact, that's the word he uses in verse 1 of Ephesians 6 to refer to both parents. So why doesn't he use that word in verse 4? Although it's clear that verse 4 relates to both parents, like I said, there is a greater, a more direct application here to fathers. Of the two parents, Fathers especially, since, since they're the head, they must ensure that they are not provoking their children to anger and instead leading them in discipline and instruction. The husband must take the charge in carrying out verse 4 within the household, and the, and the wife needs to partner with and support that charge. Ephesians 6.4 then, though applying to both parents, it's a special word for fathers in particular. So dads, if you're in the room... You need to pay careful attention. In Ephesians, wives receive four verses of instruction. Husbands receive nine verses. Children receive three verses. Here, parents or fathers, just one verse. That's it. It's just one verse of instruction here. It doesn't mean it's less important. It means that the parenting task can be succinctly stated. 
But still, you just have one verse of instruction here, which means you don't have a lot to get wrong or a lot to get right. You have one verse, so of all things, you need to make sure, at the very least, you're getting this right. And that's why it's this morning I want to take you through a, a careful exposition and explanation of this one verse to make sure you get it right. I can control how you live it out, how you apply it. That's up to you. But I do want to make sure that at the very least you know what this verse says. You know what God is calling you to and expecting of you as mother and especially as father. Briefly, a word to the younger ones who aren't parents. You better pay attention too. It's good to learn about building a house before you start building. And it's good to learn about building a family before you start building. And so now is the time where you need to understand your future roles as mother and father someday, if the Lord wills. Additionally, let me give a quick word to those with children who are already grown up and gone. You're not off the hook either. As you know, you're, you're always a parent. That doesn't change, even if the kids are gone. And of all people, you especially really need to be up to speed and up to task on these parenting issues because God calls you to disciple and direct the younger, the next generation of parents. If they can't look to you for godly examples, wisdom, and counsel, then the church really is in, in bad shape. So the point is this Father's Day sermon, it's not just for the dads. All of you have something here, and you need this word from Ephesians 6.4. So with that in mind, let's get into this verse now. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And from this verse, I want to give all of you, but especially the fathers, the three primary commitments of parenting that you may rise to the task. The three primary commitments of parenting that you may rise to the task. And the first one is this. Do not provoke your children to anger. Very simple outline. I'm sticking close to the text. Look at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's number one. Do not provoke your children to anger. The command here to parents, it's pretty simple. Although it could use some fleshing out. Provoke to anger, it's just one word in the Greek. carries the idea of moving someone to Anger, irritation, bitterness, resentment. The meaning is essentially identical to the parallel verse in Colossians where Paul uses a synonym. He says in Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. So that's the idea of don't make them resentful. Don't rouse them to anger. Don't stir up bitterness. Don't exasperate. The command It's important because it balances out verses 1 and 2 in Ephesians 6. Look there, Ephesians 6, look at verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. Children should obey. It's right. It is right in the Lord for them to obey their parents. This doesn't mean their parents are always right or always in the right when they call upon their children to obey. Parents can act in the wrong. They they can sin, even against their children, and that can exasperate them, provoking them to anger, and parents have to avoid this. I have to say that this, this command to not provoke your children to anger, it would be way more impactful for all of us if we lived in the first century with Paul. Why? 
Because back then, this, this verse was so counterculture. It's, it's like this. Imagine today the president in the State of the Union address. He told the whole nation to spank their children. That would cause an uproar. It is so counterculture today. Well, that's kind of like this. When Paul back then said, don't provoke your children to anger, it, it was counterculture. Back then, Roman parenting was known for having no concern with exasperating children. It's not even, it wasn't even in their mind. They didn't care. The commentator Hendrickson and many others tell of the Roman law of Patria Potestas, translation, the father's power. This law of the land meant that men had absolute dictatorial power over their families. Fathers had complete control over their children. It didn't matter if they were 50 years old. If they were still their child, they were both alive, fathers had absolute control. At any time, fathers could have their children imprisoned, scourged, shamed, sold into slavery, even killed without going through the courts. Children were unwanted, mistreated, abandoned, and abused. Ancient writings reveal how this law was lived out. One ancient Roman named Hillary, he sent a letter to his wife. And he's telling her, I'm going to send you money for the child as soon as I can. And then he went on to write, If, good luck to you, you have another child, if it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, expose it. Meaning, leave it to die. Another wrote about how they treated unwanted animals. He said, We slaughter a fierce ox. We strangle a mad dog. We plunge a knife into a sick cow. Children born weak or deformed, we drown. End quote. That's the world. That's the world that Paul and the early Christians lived in. And as you can see, the last thing that fathers at the time worried about was provoking their children to anger. But we know, we see, we learn that that is unrighteous and, of course, ungodly parenting. Children are not slaves created for your bidding. They're not inconveniences that intrude on your time. They're not unfortunate happenings that can be disposed of. The children are a blessing from the Lord and their stewardship. God has entrusted them into your care that you might raise them up so that they know him. That's the responsibility of parenting. It's also the joy. Although our society today, we would frown upon the ancient Roman mistreatment of children. We think about it, we're not so different. Of course, we think we're modern and civilized and not as brutal, but we still see children as disposable inconveniences. If a child is not wanted before birth, they are aborted. If they're not wanted after birth, they're abandoned. Are, are things so different? We too still need to view children rightly, and we too still need this corrective word from Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And why is that important? What's, what's the big deal here? Why is that bad? What, what happens when you exasperate your children or provoke them to anger? Whether it's on purpose or not, you're effectively putting a stumbling block in their path. You are effectively tempting them to sin. Now, you're not forcing them to sin, but you're doing the next best thing. You're provoking them. You're a stumbling influence in their lives. And if I'm not mistaken, Jesus had some harsh words to say to those who stumbled little ones. Parents who nonetheless act to goad, irritate, aggravate their children, they're met with the worst of consequences, and this can be especially bad 
in Christian homes. Nominal Christian parents who live hypocritical lives, who don't properly love and nurture their children, but instead domineer and dominate them with an iron fist, quickly exasperate their children. And it's these children who grow up hostile to the Lord. And why wouldn't they be? Their parents claim to be Christians, but look how terrible they were. So why would they want to have anything to do with this whole Christianity thing? Yet other Christian parents with much better intentions can still run into trouble. They can still unintentionally provoke their children and reap the consequences. Why does this happen? Well, sometimes it's simply because parents are clueless. They just don't know better. Parenting does not come naturally to parents. I know. And obedience does not come naturally to children. Just imagine this. Tomorrow, instead of going into work, you had to be a nurse for the day. You had to do it. How would you do? Probably terribly. Because you have no idea what to do. Yeah, you've seen some nurses in action throughout your life, so you'd try and imitate them. But that's about it. Otherwise, you're, you're clueless. You have no idea what to do. That's parenting. That's exactly what happens when you have a child. Literally overnight, when your child is born, you have a new job. It's called parent. And most of the times, you have no idea what to do next. You just have a baby. What are you supposed to do? Now what? Now what are you supposed to do? You have no idea. This is why most parents, sometimes, they just resort to imitating their own parents. It's all they know. And if they weren't raised in solidly biblical homes, sometimes this can be problematic. Maybe you're listening and you're asking yourself, is that me? Am I one of those who exasperates my child? I don't mean to, but but am I? What does this look like? Well, Paul doesn't say. He doesn't flesh this out. He doesn't tell us the many ways parents can provoke their children to anger. Because there are too many ways. They depend on the person, depend on the parent, depend on the child, and they, they differ. But I want to try and help you out here and expose to you some of the ways you might be exasperating your children. I have to say, though, here, I'm speaking humbly. My daughter is three months old. I'm obviously not speaking from personal experience. But, you know, by by, by God's grace, I stand on the shoulders of godly men who have come before me. And I want to give you some of their wisdom that you can take. And we all can learn from their wisdom. So with that in mind, I want to give you three big ways parents can provoke their children to anger and bitterness to consider three ways parents can provoke their children to anger and bitterness. Here's the first one. Never trusting, but being overprotective. Never trusting, but being overprotective. Some parents never trust their children. They've been disappointed in the past, and so they either assume they're lying or they just hold them suspect all the time. They refuse to give them responsibility because... They can't trust them to follow through. And parents like this fall into overprotection where they they cage their children in. In reality, it's the parents' fears that dominate their children. And this just stifles children and embitters them. And children start to think that no matter what happens, they can't please their parents. They can't earn their trust. Finally, they stop caring. And you don't want that. Imagine a bird that never lets her chicks out of the nest to learn to fly because she doesn't trust them. How long until the children grow bitter? Not long. Number one, never trusting but being overprotective. Number two, 
Never encouraging, but being overcritical. Never encouraging, but being overcritical. This one's huge. Some parents create impossible goals for their children. And on the off chance their children meet the goals, they don't encourage them. But more often when they fail to meet their goals or expectations, the criticism is fast and furious. Imagine a father whose child wins a silver medal and the father replies, why didn't you get a gold? Imagine a mother whose child gets a B-plus in school and she says, you should be getting A's. This is a sure way to provoke your child to anger, wrath, bitterness. The motivation here is usually selfishness among parents. They're putting pressure on their children because they believe the child's performance reflects on them. They want the bragging rights, the prestige. They believe that if their child succeeds, they succeed as parents, and they want that. But if you merely focus on your child's faults, you're not making them better, you're making them bitter. And it's only a while before you crush their spirits. It's just like Paul said in Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Why? So that they will not lose heart. Is number two, never encouraging but being overcritical. And then number three, never loving but being overbearing. Never loving but being overbearing. Similar number two. Some parents take it further and they never even express love to their children. They're instead just an imposing force. They're the household dictator. And usually this plagues the dads. Children are scared and intimidated of dad because he could blow up at any moment. That is unreasonable. It's it's his way or the highway. He's always right, never wrong, never apologizes, never asks for forgiveness, although he definitely sins. He does not show love, grace, patience, kindness, gentleness, but he harshly deals with his kids like troublesome pests, And that's most definitely the fast track to making your kids bitter, angry, and resentful. In all these, thankfully, we can look to our Heavenly Father who guides us with this example. He doesn't excuse our sin, but he definitely showers us with love. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. It's a serious command. and has serious consequences if ignored. And dads, this morning, take a look at your parenting. Take a look in the mirror. To all of us, if there are things you need to change, join the club. But then, get on it. Start or stop doing whatever you need to do. And negatively, first, put off that which pushes your kids to sin and anger. We all fall short and fail in many ways. But you can resolve to do better and to start heeding this word from Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, parents, do not provoke children to anger. Now for our second, our second primary commitment of parenting. Number two, bring up your children in the discipline of the Lord. Bring up your children in the discipline of the Lord. Look at verse four again. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The second second command given to parents and fathers especially is to bring them up, although I'm splitting this one up into two points, bring them up with discipline and then we'll do bring them up with instruction. But the command itself is to bring them up. And this command occurs one other place in scripture. It's just the page before. Look back at Ephesians 5 verse 29. 
He says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, that's the word, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Here again we see the primacy of the man's role. Just as he is to nourish and provide for himself, so he is to nourish and provide for his wife. And, just as he is to nourish and provide for his wife, he is to nourish and provide for his children. He is to, to nourish them, to raise them, to bring them up. Dad is to bring home the bacon. Dad is responsible for putting food on the table, both physical and and spiritual and pay more attention to that last one because that's the point of verse 4 it is the man's job primarily to spiritually raise the children this job is given to you men not to the state not to society not even to the church husbands fathers especially so the men here how are you doing in this second job I I tell guys all the time When you clock out of your first job at 5 p.m., you are immediately clocking in to your second job as father-slash-husband right away. When you get home, it's not all about me time where you get to laze around and do nothing because you you worked hard all day. Now's the time your second job is beginning, and it's time to shepherd and be with your family and disciplining and instructing your kids. Does it sound like too much? That's why fatherhood should be for men and not boys. And if you don't like the second job, you better start liking it soon because it's yours. And your role as a authority, as a father, it's an authority and obedience issue. But not for your children, for you. You are under God's authority, and you are called to obey God. So will you? Will you respect God's authority, and will you obey God rising to the task of fathering? The first way you need to raise your children is with discipline, verse 4 says, is translated by the NASB. This word is paideia in the Greek. Actually, it's a broader term. It's translated instruction in 2 Timothy 3.16. But it's instruction that oftentimes comes in the form of discipline. It's instruction that's in connection with correction. The idea of discipline, it seemed as so negative by some people. To them, disciplining your child seems cruel. Unloving. That could not be, however, further from the truth. Let me show you. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Move forward a little bit just to Hebrews chapter 12. I want to briefly show you how God, he disciplines us. But it is an expression of his love, his grace, and his care. It would be a show of hatred if God refused to discipline us as his children. And we should thank God for reproving us, for drawing us back to the way. Hebrews 12, start verse 5. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. He then goes on to say, If you're not being disciplined by the Lord, you're an illegitimate child. 
Because God absolutely disciplines every single one of his children. Because he loves them. He has to. Well, why though? Why does he do it? Look at verse 10. Speaking of human parents first, he says, verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Isn't that what you want? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Discipline, it's a tool in the hand of God or parents to correct their children, to keep them from harm, to bring them back to the way. And this gets to the heart of discipline. The rod is meant to instruct, to help, to love, to save. As a parent, you must never discipline your child, be it through spanking or whatever means, in order to harm them or to exact vengeance upon them. Never, never discipline them in anger, but instead always in love. When done according to Scripture, using the rod or spanking your child, it's God's prescribed means for showing true love and caring for your child. And it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I want to take it even further and show you more. So turn back with me now to Proverbs, the book of Proverbs. Kind of close to the middle of your Bible. And find Proverbs 13 to start with. Just after Psalms, get to Proverbs Go to verse thir- or chapter 13 to start. I'm going to rifle through some of these to so follow along. Proverbs 13, verse 24. And let me show you what God in his wisdom says about the rod or discipline. That's what the book of Proverbs is. It's God's wisdom for us today. Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Turn over. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Write these down if you need to. Go back and meditate upon them. Proverbs 22, 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13 through 14. Turn the page over. Proverbs 23, 13 to 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol or from hell. One more. Proverbs 29, 15. Among these speak for themselves. God's instruction on the rod, it's, it's pretty clear. Proverbs 29, verse 15. The rod and the reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. You can turn back to Ephesians. Just a few words on what the Bible says about the rod, the importance, the necessity, and the blessing of discipline. Today, Spanking or using the rod. It's fallen on hard times because people get it so wrong. People associate it with beating children. And let me just say, this should be obvious, but 
harming your child, beating, whipping, slapping, punching, choking, those are all wrong. That is not biblical discipline. Just a couple weeks ago, a California elected official, I think he was head over an irrigation district or something, he was arrested. He was caught on camera and arrested for whipping his child, his, his stepson, because he couldn't catch a baseball properly. That is not biblical discipline. And this past week, the popular but false teacher Creflo Dollar, I don't know if you heard in the news, was also arrested. Why? Because his daughter called the cops on him for beating and choking her. That is also not biblical discipline, although he said he was trying to discipline her. That's not discipline. Yet it's incidents like these that, that turn the world against any form of discipline. It is so important for Christians to implement discipline correctly. I mean, for one, it gives God's word a black eye because they wrongly portray it. But here's the thing. Getting discipline wrong, it's just another way you can exasperate your child, like we learned. Disciplining in anger, trying to get back at your kids, being vengeful, that's sin. Discipline should have a sting. That's the point. It has a sting. But you should never harm your child. Instead, discipline should be a loving and corrective way to instruct your child in the path of righteousness. You're disciplining them not to get back at them. And it's not even because they disobeyed you. You discipline them because in disobeying you, they disobeyed God. That's the point. I remember back in college, I heard my pastor tell a story about how once he had to discipline his son his son had sinned in some big way, he didn't say, but it was a big way, and he was due for a big discipline. So he took his boy, laid him over his lap, and prepared him for a spanking. And he used a little leather strap instead of his hand, gave a, a good sting, but it never harmed the child. But this time, the pastor did things differently. As he laid his son over him, he, he placed his hand over the child's bottom. And then he proceeded to administer the, the spanks to his own hand, which was covering and protecting his son's bottom. His son didn't feel a thing except the pressure of his dad hitting his own hand. Why would the pastor do this? I mean, isn't the purpose of discipline to punish the child and make them pay for their wrongs? No. The purpose is to lovingly instruct them in the form of discipline. And on this occasion, the pastor knew he had the perfect opportunity to share the gospel with his son. Every discipline opportunity is a shepherding opportunity. The pastor then explained to his son afterwards that both of them deserved God's punishment because at times both of them disobeyed God. Then he said to him, But Christ came and through his death on the cross, he, he covered me just like I covered you. And he took the punishment for my sins. And he told his son that if he too put his trust in Jesus for life, Jesus would cover him as well. That's what discipline is. That's what it's all about. It's not about your kid's bottom. It's about your kid's heart. Discipline helps you get to their heart. Their problem is not self-esteem. Their problem is sin. And the rod exposes their ever-present sin problem. It lets you show them they will always sin, they will always disobey, and therefore, what's their need? It's regeneration. It's redemption. 
The goal of your parenting is not to create well-mannered, well-behaved, respectful, obedient children. There are plenty of respectful and obedient people in hell. The goal of your parenting is to lead your child to Christ. Now look, we know you can't save them. You can't save them. But you can lead them to Christ's doorstep. That's your job. You can till the soil of their hearts. You can plant seeds. And this is what this is the thing. Discipline is the plow that breaks their hard soil. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline, not of the world, but of the Lord. This is another serious commitment in the parenting task, but it's a non-negotiable. This is God's own practiced and prescribed method for raising children and bringing them to righteousness. And so you need to make it yours as well. And briefly, I'll note here, if you're out there and you want to know more about navigating the waters of discipline or spanking in our day and age, where it is very counterculture, then you can come see me after. Obviously, I can't include everything in this sermon, but if you're looking for more practical help, I can put some very good resources in your hand in addition to scripture. Let's finish up now with our third primary commitment of parenting. Number three, bring up your children in the instruction of the Lord. Look at verse four again, back in Ephesians six. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and now instruction of the Lord. Earlier we read Proverbs 29.15, which says that the rod and reproof give wisdom. And notice, the rod alone does not give wisdom. Proverbs 22.15 says that the rod is used to drive foolishness out of your child's heart. But you can't really spank wisdom into their heart. This is where instruction comes in. Now look, you should instruct your child 24-7. Let me just point out though, but your discipline should never be without instruction. Instruction should always accompany discipline. But now we want to focus on this instruction itself. Whereas discipline is teaching your child by what you do, instruction is teaching your child by what you say. This word for instruction is often translated admonition. It's giving your child a verbal warning and instruction. It's giving them a good speaking to. And the story of Eli and 1 Samuel is a vivid picture of the life and death consequences of this instruction. Eli, if you don't remember, he was a good man, a godly man, a priest of the tabernacle back in the time of the judges. And he cared for and guided Samuel, who would become the last and greatest judge of Israel. But Eli did not show the same care for his own sons. They were described as worthless men. They were wicked, corrupt, immoral, greedy, deceitful, all around evil, and Eli knew it. He knew it, but he never admonished them. He never instructed them. He never warned them. He didn't shepherd them. And so God delivered a judgment to Eli because he failed to train and instruct his sons. 1 Samuel 3.13 says, God says, For I have told him, that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Eli, in this case, he's being judged not for his sins, 
but for his sons, which he failed to do anything about. He failed to instruct. Will God judge you for failing to admonish and instruct your children in his ways? Don't be lazy with this task. Dads, the best Bible teacher a child can ever have is you, dad. You must raise them, you must instruct them, or someone else will, and you don't want that. Parents always ask at this point, though, does this mean I have to prepare like a formal Bible study every night, or do I, do I need like a Bible degree here? Or, look, you should learn the Bible yourself as much as possible, and it is good if you can formally lead them at times in Bible knowledge. But the instruction here, it's, it's more of a 24-7 idea. Biblical instruction, it should just be your way of life as a parent. You need, you need to impart biblical wisdom to them at every turn. Life is their school. Wherever they are is their classroom. You are their instructor. instructor. The Bible is your textbook. That's how it works. If you want to know what this looks like, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This actually be the last verse we look to, so you can, you can abandon Ephesians 6. But Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we'll start verse 4 when you get there. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Make our way to verse 4. Verses 4 through 6 are God's instructions to the people in general. Moses is relaying this to the people, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Here, Moses, he's teaching the people about God. He's saying, first, you need to know God yourselves and obey him and treasure him and love him and follow him. And first, you need to have God's word on your heart. We're not talking about kids yet. It's just you. You need to know God, follow him, and have his word on your heart. Then we get to verse 7. So you can't skip 4 through 6 if you just want to get to 7. Verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. There it is. Teach them diligently. Not teach them every now and then, not teach them when you feel like it, not teach them once a month, teach them diligently. How often? All the time. The point of this verse is that you, sh- you should live life as a classroom with nonstop instruction. Every, every, any situation you encounter, it's an opportunity to instruct them with biblical wisdom. Look at verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on doorposts of your house and on your gates. I remember being at Berkeley and seeing Orthodox Jews actually do this. They, Jews came to act, take this uh, overly literal, and they would tie these things called phylacteries, little boxes that had scraps of scripture in them, and they would literally tie them with leather straps to their forehead and to their hand, and they'd say some prayers. I guess they thought God's word would enter through osmosis or some sort of transportation. It's really missing the point. The point is God's word should always be with you, governing your thoughts, your actions, your head, and your hand. That's the point. And that's the point of our instruction to our children. It's not just to make them smart. It's not just to educate them so they can get 
good GPAs. As Deuteronomy 6 says, the point is to ensure that your children do not forget the Lord, that they fear Him, that they worship Him alone. That's the point. Again, it's all about the heart. Discipline uses your child's bottom to get to their heart. Instruction uses your child's top or their head, their mind, to get to their heart. But it's all about the heart. Why? Because what's your goal? Redemption. Regeneration. You have to get to the heart. You need to be constantly teaching, as Deuteronomy 6 prescribes, who God is, what he has done, what he has said, and how we fall short. Show them the sin problem and show them the solution, the poison, the antidote, the disease, the cure. Use discipline to teach them about their sin problem, which they can't escape, and then use instruction to teach them about Christ, who overcomes that sin problem. Explain to them your own need for salvation. You're not perfect. You're going to fall short as their parent, just as they fall short as your child. But Christ is the solution for you, for them. Tell them how Jesus, God's Son, died to pay the penalty that we deserve. And that by turning away from our sins and following Him for the rest of our lives, we will be saved, covered, forgiven. Sooner or later, your child will encounter death in this world. They'll see it in life. They need to know Jesus is the solution to death, both physical and spiritual. And then finally, live this instruction out. That's a big one. This is your duty for yourself and your parenting. Show your children by how you live how much better life is with Christ. Show them the true joys, the blessings of salvation and obedience. Show them to obey is a good thing. It's the better life. And what do you expect? Do you expect your children to be excited for the things of the Lord when you treat coming to church and reading your Bible as as a chore? Do you expect them to be excited if you're not? Instead, display the true joy that you have in the Lord. All this and more needs to be the focus of your instruction. You teach, you live, you pass it on. Fathers, parents... Bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. This sounds like a lot. Does it? Sounds sounds pretty hard. At least to me it does. And I, I tread humbly and carefully here because I, I'm personally just beginning my parenting journey. I know one thing though. I am not good enough. I, I can't pull this off. I cannot rise to this standard. And neither can you. You just can't do this. You can't be the parents that God wants you to be. You're not going to discipline them rightly. You're not going to instruct them rightly. You are going to exasperate them from time to time. We are both going to fail. But there's some really good news here. God's grace is sufficient for you. Do you believe that? His grace is sufficient for you. If you ever feel discouraged in the overwhelming nature of the parenting task, it's it's a thankless job. It's a hard job. You need to remember, God's power is perfected in your weakness. That's the whole point. God wants you to be at the end of your rope because that's where the starting line is. You can't even begin until you're at the end of your resources and you lean on His. God wants you to depend on Him. He will give you the strength you need. Trust God for your parenting. Rely on His grace, which comes through the Holy Spirit. Depend on Him in prayer. Use His word. God will bless your efforts. By His grace, 
you and I can both change where we need to. We can excel in all things if you submit to His plan, His will, and His word. Fathers, happy Father's Day. Enjoy the day. But your job isn't done. It's never done because then come the grandkids. But all parents alike can take seriously this charge, this word from Ephesians 6.4. You love your children. I know you do. So show them a true biblical love that God rewards. And I know you already sacrificed so much for your children. So let it not be in vain. Commit to the task at hand. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Our Father who is in heaven, we call upon you as as our heavenly Father. And you are good. You are a good Father. We thank you for that. We thank you for your fatherly influence in our lives. How you show us a perfect love. How you always discipline us in love to correct, not to harm. How you always instruct us in the way we should go. We thank you for that. And may we all today follow your example. Where I confess for myself and for all of us, there is not a single perfect parent. We all fall short. Nor is there a single perfect child. But may we approach this task with humility and with a great dependence upon you. Lord, we are not sufficient for these things. As Paul himself said, but your your grace is sufficient. And that's why you get the glory that you deserve. We depend on you for all things. I pray for all the parents here. They would leave with a renewed encouragement and sense of vigor as they, they seek to pursue this task with with an excitement, a dependence upon you, a more desperation for prayer, which they should have, a greater desire to search your scriptures, to apply what they know, and to live it out. We all need to grow in these things, but I pray for those who need to take that step forward. May they commit to the task at hand. Encourage them, Lord, and show them your goodness toward them, that they might be good to their children. Bless us as a church that we provide examples of, of godly parenting to the surrounding world. We thank you. We love you. We thank you for the fathers in our lives. Though there are none perfect, we thank you for them anyway. And we always praise you, our perfect Heavenly Father. In your name we pray. Amen.